All right. Thank you for tuning in to the, uh, the Classroom Critics Podcast, a film studies podcast by teachers. My name is Bill Ivers, and I'm joined today, as I often am, by Dr. Andrew Martino, also from Southern New Hampshire University. And uh, tonight, we are broadcasting from, or podcasting from, we're doing something very different. We're in a local um, bar, to call, to call it a bar seems cutting it short. It's a nice place called Granite Tapas, a beautiful little establishment here in Hookston, New Hampshire, not far from uh, where we work at Southern New Hampshire University. So you're going to hear a lot of ambient noise. You're going to hear a lot of interruptions, distractions, um, some sipping, maybe a waiter or two coming in here. But hey, that's uh, that's why we're here. for the, We're experimental uh, tonight. Exactly. As pertains, uh, it's kind of a um, non sequitur to <laughs> you know, if we were doing Casablanca or something, it would make more sense. Yeah. But we just figured we'd take it, uh, take it someplace different, change the scenery. But uh, tonight we're going to do a film called The Magnificent Ambersons, um, directed by Orson Welles, based on the uh, Booth Tarkington novel, starring Joseph Cotton, Dolores Costello, Ann Baxter, Tim Holt, Agnes Moorhead, Ray Collins, and others. And um, we're just going to have a very Freeform discussion. We just actually recently saw this um, at the Brattle Theater in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts. And uh, if you don't know the Brattle Theater, it's a classic art house, right? Yeah. Uh, it's known as the unofficial film school of, uh, of the Boston area. It's and, a jewel. Absolutely. And I just, I, it was the first time I saw this on the big screen. I, I was blown away and uh, uh, I, I was, it was very cathartic for yeah. me. What did you think about seeing it on the big screen? Because I had only seen it on television as well. It became a better, even better movie. I mean, I loved this yeah. film uh, prior to seeing it that night, but uh, it just came to life. And just, and honestly, seeing it, it went with a crowd, with a, with, a, yeah. with a group of onlookers, it was just, um, you know, just brought to life even more. I think, you know, the comedy came out. I mean, there were some funny moments in it. But, uh, it does seem to be a lot funnier than I remember it yeah. when I saw it. It had been about 20 years, I think, since I saw it last. So it was like almost like seeing it again for me for the yeah. first time. Yeah. Certainly seeing it on the big screen, which I think is arguably how people should see mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where does um, this film, it's often brought up uh, in, in this, when you discuss, discuss Wells' career, it's often brought up as another uh, bastardization film from his... Uh, Filmography, and often whenever you, you bring it up, it's you know you inevitably get into discussion of oh it's it's not what he wanted, and um, I don't know where it stands for you in terms of uh, Wells Wells' body of work, but I mean for me I think it absolutely is still great. You know I think it's still an, a, a, an excellent film, and I don't think you necessarily need to have the um, the apology that. You know, oh, it was uh, yeah, it was butchered. I, I think it still stands as it, a great film. I agree with you. I think it, I think, with the exception of the last five minutes or so, mm-hmm. it is absolutely a terrific film. And you know, it's, I think it was Fred Fleck who did the last five minutes, that last horrible scene that is so upbeat uh, and so at odds with with how the rest of the film played, um, both in terms of the atmosphere, the, the cinematography, as well as the story. Um, it is magnificent. It really is. Mm-hmm. I think it's. It well said. It it was going to be better than Kane, and and 
in many respects it might have been. It was truly an American film, I think, in, in a way that Kane was, but but different from that. Yeah. It, um, I mean, I've heard people say that it's even even in its state now uh, that it's better than that they like it better yeah. than Kane. I've, I've heard people say that, and uh, I could definitely see that. Uh, it could have been. Yeah. You know, I, I personally don't think it's better than Kane, but I, yeah. I think it, uh, the brilliance is still there. Yeah, I think it, it's it's a splendid follow-up to Kane. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a sophomore. He didn't have that sophomore slump um, uh, with that film. Um, I, I like Kane more, but I could see how, as you do, but I could see how people, you know, people have Kane fatigue. Mm -hmm. You know, when you talk about the greatest films of all time, Kane is always there. Yeah. And Magnificent Ambersons, because of that, gets forgotten. Yeah. yeah. When you watch... Ambersons, I don't I don't necessarily find myself um, focusing on the technique of it, even though the technique is brilliant. It's yeah. there. It's it's it just seems to be more poetic of a film, um, and uh, it's just it's so well. I mean, you know, yeah, he has such a unique uh, feel and vibe to his to his directing, his editing. And just the, the beginning, just the you know, the start off. It just what other films start off that way from yeah. that era you know you start off with you know it starts off actually just kind of like uh citizen kane does with yeah the, you know the author and the you know the title card and, you know like many of the films back then you'd get all the you know the, the cast and, and all the, the production yeah. uh credits right you know before the now it's after you know right current films now everything's usually afterward but you have the uh you know uh, mercury production right by orson welles the Magnificent Ambersons, kind of like the way Kane, and then suddenly it's, you know, you have, I don't know, a good 10, 15, maybe even 20 seconds of, of black, just, yeah. just narration. Yeah. And uh, it's almost like Wells kind of like going back to his radio days where yeah. he allows the, you know, even for a, a moment, the, the theater of the mind yeah. to take you into the story. I think you're absolutely right. I think, especially if you look at the end, there are no credits, right? They're all spoken by Wells. And then he'll show the picture, you know, Joseph Cotton and, and all of those people. It's a people. curtain call. It's a curtain call. Exactly right. Yeah. So in many ways, as, as how the automobile, at least for me, how the automobile figures in the film, it's also Wells, you know, looking, I think, towards cinema taking over from radio. Yes. You know, it's as the next logical, yeah. um, civilized progression, yeah. I yeah. suppose. Sure. And I, you know, I've heard Orson Welles talk about this in some interviews where, you know, it seems like with a lot of filmmakers and a lot of people who think they know about film, there are so-called rules. Yeah. Like, oh, that's not cinematic. Voiceovers are not cinematic. Right. Or this, that's not cinematic. But I don't think Welles compartmentalized like that with his art. You know, he brought radio techniques to his art. And if it worked, it worked, uh, and I think it almost always does with him. And uh, it, you know, theater lighting—he brought that. He didn't say, "Okay, we need film lighting." Right. Not, right. So it, it's just—it's it, like one expression for him, and he doesn't necessarily uh, abide by these standards, which you know makes—that's what a lot of geniuses do. They don't—they're not. He wasn't conventional. Not at all. You're right, and I think that's that's part of that's part of his genius mm -hmm. in a way, his ability to to. Not be told no. Don't yeah. tell me you can't do something. Let's do it anyway. Exactly. Or let's find a way to do it. Right. Um, and what he does in this, perhaps even more than Kane, is he tells a story. Um, 
although Kane is a story as well, it's it's more of a almost like a Borges inspired story where you know this is they're looking for somebody. It's a detective story much more than Amberson's is. Yes, Amberson's is this this Midwest great American story, mm-hmm. uh, you know, about the end of an era. Well, uh, being from the Midwest, right? You know, uh, I've heard him say also in interviews that he uh, he uh, had some aunts and relatives growing up that lived in houses like yeah. uh, the Ambersons did, uh, these gigantic, uh, just overly ornate uh, houses that just suggest uh, opulence and yeah. uh, wealth, extreme well, wealth. Yeah. yeah, with these massive staircases in the middle. Right. And, you know, I, you know, like, you know, let's say with Gone with the Wind, like these, yeah. these, these um, in that case it was Southern, but in this case just... And these Midwestern houses with these, you know, why would they have staircases like that? Yeah. These, these staircases that suggest royalty for some royal procession. Yeah. They, there was no royal processions. They were, right. <laughs> they were just there for... for That's interesting yeah. what, what, what you say, though, because I think, you know, as much as we think of ourselves in the United States as a classless society, this film especially is very attuned to class. Oh, big time. Uh, and, and, you know, it might be one of the major undercurrents that's, that's flowing through it. I believe so, too. Yep. And, uh, you know, getting to the, the heart of the story, perhaps the theme here, uh, it's, it's the theme that Orson Welles was consumed with throughout his career. That's the loss uh, of innocence. Yeah. Uh, um, or the, uh, you know, something great and pure... Just, just losing its uh, its luster. Yeah. In this case, you have the old world that, that this family knew. You know, the, the world. You know, he, he sort of puts that on the table right at the beginning. You know, um, he talks about how you know it was a, it was a society where you had these households that knew other households. Yeah, and they they all knew each other's business, and there was a, a rhythm to life that just existed it's the way it was no one was ever in a rush no one questioned it yep and uh, as he's narrating all this stuff it's all it's all happening in that one uh, that one image yeah. you know uh, of, the, of the house and the car pulling up and someone yelling up and uh, someone yelling out the window I'll be right there it just, yeah. it, it's just the the predictability of, of that life how things were supposed to be how it was supposed to work but of course um, you know nothing, it couldn't last yeah you know so eventually um that that old world had to fade away you know um i think what comes to mind when i see the magnificent emersons is a, a rose for emily yeah know, the faulkner story you know? just them trying to hold on to that old way of life that was always fleeting right and and, that, and, and it, it's dying right so i yeah. think you're absolutely right there are uh, certainly echoes of faulkner and yeah. in, in, in this in this uh, yep. particular film. only it's a midwestern only it's a midwestern yeah. uh, it's written law you know Tarkington writes it or publishes it anyway in 1918 so it's long before Faulkner mm-hmm. um, so but there are Faulknerian elements to it mm-hmm. um, it's interesting that the, the whole idea of the house and the name right the Amberson name stands for something you know it's 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 you know the, like the noble house of the Amberson or something right. exactly. in that sense they are royalty um, for lack of a better term, sure. in in the Midwest United States at right. this particular time, but you, if you look at the the next generation, you get George right Miniford, who's is you know the whole film is about him getting his comeuppance, yes, and and what happens when the new generation is coddled and and uh, is completely self-absorbed, it's right. egotistical. 
you know, you think it seems like George is the one who is trying to hold on to the past. Yeah. More so than, it, you know, ironically that he's supposedly the next generation, but he, um, he cannot progress. He cannot move on. He's against the concept of a uh, horseless carriage. Right. He believes they're a useless nuisance. And uh, he's trying to hold on to, you know, that, that familiarity, that, that innocence. And he refuses to get a job. Right? He says something, I can't remember exactly what he says, but you know, there's no career that interests him. There's, he wants to be know, a yachtsman. He wants to be a yachtsman. <laughs> right? That's, That's it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. A yachtsman. Well, there you go. You know. That'd be a good job. That'd be a good job for, yeah, if you could get it. Right. Yeah. But, but it's, you know, it's, it's so wonderfully contemporary too, isn't it? I mean, a lot of, a lot of the conversations we're having about, uh, you know, the generation that's coming up now, it's, um, you know, the millennials, we're having the same conversation about, yeah. you know, about them. So <laughs> that's right. I guess, too. you know, it shows you that history is, it does. Yeah. keeps recurring. Yeah. It's the, uh, you know, it's what's the, go- the golden age fallacy, yeah. you know, the golden age fallacy that, um, life was so much pure and more beautiful so much simpler and uh, yeah in the past yeah. and uh that there's always the modern world um looming on the horizon to destroy yeah. everything and you know it, I, th- I think again that's that's what wells was kind of obsessed with yeah uh, even when he did um chimes at midnight yeah you know i mean that's that's false i mean Absolutely. false false represents the merry old england yeah. that never existed yeah you know and uh the uh you know Prince Hal represents eventually because he comes to represent the um, you know Shakespeare's modern world yeah. you know pop, you know pop political uh, you know uh, corruption and um, all that stuff but and bringing countries together through marriage and, and all of that exactly in that sense yeah exactly and um, so I, I just think this is just, it's one of Wells' works that really kind of go go into that whole body of work that deals with this. I, I think that this is a major Wells work. I, I do. think, yeah. I, yeah, it's it's up there with Kane um, and, and Chimes at Midnight for me, definitely um, yeah. as as one of the major pieces, Absolutely. and even as minor masterpieces, I still think as masterpieces. Oh yeah, something like you know, even the trial, which uh, can grate on at least me after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Are still masterpieces in that sense, definitely. But there's something about Ambersons, the way it's shot, the way that it feels. Yeah, there's that gothic quality to it. Of, you know, the house and and the shadows everywhere Absolutely. that, uh, you know, it was just, it's, it's terrific. I learned, um, through a little research here that the house was built, uh, you know, Wells obviously being very involved in the uh, production design. This house was built for the, uh, the production of course, and the, the, the walls and, and, and floors and certain objects were meant, uh, were built to move, you know, uh, to slide. Yeah. Because if you think about it, you know, this, especially the, uh, the ballroom scene, just the, uh, Fluid camera work, yeah. going in and out of rooms without cuts. It's just, I mean, talk about you know, choreography. Yeah, and just and, that, and Wells did say at some point that this is where you separate the men from the the boys, being able to make such um, you know to do such shots without cutting. You know, he, he he didn't have to cut. He just allowed the camera to be his, you know, to sort of poetically uh, move from room to room and seeing the scene. Uh, and everything, if you think about it, had to be so well rehearsed oh, yeah. for him to pull that off. Do you think that uh, it's it's like Kane that it was so ahead of its time because the people really didn't like it <laughs> when they when they went through previews? No, they didn't know what and, they saw, and and they didn't know what they saw. Yeah, they had no idea. what they were saying. They were la- um, the 
from what I've read, there was laughter. Yeah. People just didn't get what they were seeing. Wells liked, I think, when he when he directed actors and he wanted to create a tone with his storytelling, I think he, he wanted to have the tone be a little bit heightened. He didn't want um, incredible dramatic realism. I think he yeah. wanted uh, you know, a certain amount of uh, height, uh, heightened quality to his to the acting. And yeah. So, so I just think a lot of people just didn't just didn't get that. Yeah. You know, he wanted he wanted some you know he wanted impressionism in a way. I guess yeah. like almost in some cases almost Dickensian. I think I yeah. think Wells was kind of Dickensian. You know, I would if agree. It, if it makes sense, an American Dickensian style of of presenting characters and telling telling stories. Certainly, I think that you know, in many ways, he presupposes Robert Altman and the way Altman overlaps dialogue. He didn't overlap dialogue in that way, but you could see how, you know, people are, are almost talking over one another yeah, exactly. in a lot of his films. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's, it's, it can be confusing if you're not paying attention, but it's, it's wonderful. It's, it, puts, it puts the viewer actually in the room right. in a way that a lot of films I don't think can or, or maybe are just unwilling to do, yes. which is maybe why RKO hated it so much, exactly. or some of the people in RKO, I, should, <laughs> I, should, I hasten to add. Well, you know, they, they didn't, you know, they had their problems with it, but I think, you know, I think often it starts with the, um, you know, the test audience, the preview yeah. audiences, and they, I guess people were laughing. Yeah, um, completely wrong audience for that. Didn't, from what I understand, they didn't know that what they were going to see. They, they were, they were thinking they were going to see one film, and and they showed this first, and the other film was a comedy, so they weren't yeah. prepared for it. Absolutely, uh, it's almost as if they the RKO sabotaged it in some way, <laughs> uh, and they may have still been upset with with Kane for you know with what Wells did with Kane and losing so much money with Kane and. This film uh, Seems lost way. a great deal of money. Um, in my notes here, it you know it cost about eight hundred fifty thousand dollars the budget for for Magnificent Ambulance, <laughs> and you know it, it certainly did not make. Um, it lost a lot, sure. more than eight hundred fifty thousand dollars. Right, right. And it's almost you know it's kind of like the equivalent of. I mean, from what I understand, it was a Saturday night crowd who just yeah. wanted some. Um, hello. Yeah, I'll take a. Oh, yeah, thanks. Um, I think it was a Saturday night crowd that was looking for just some mindless diversion. Yeah. You know, as you said, they were expecting perhaps something lighthearted and, and they got Chekhov. Yeah, exactly right. Well, think of the time, right? 1942. Yeah. So, you know, the world is, in the sh is, is, is about to be plunged into, or at least the United States is, right? Yeah. Europe has, has long been suffering, but, you know, it's... Every it's almost as if it's the Wells story, right? Everything is against. It's, yeah. it's like he his timing was not great. Well, Wells lived in the wrong. I mean, I, I hate to say that because. But he, you're right. I think because it wouldn't be Wells, right? If if he if he fit in, it would be. <laughs> we probably wouldn't get what we got from him. No, but he is certainly a man out of time. Oh, big time! Because think about it. Film to most people back during this time, especially the studio heads, was just a. Uh, a diversion yeah. and entertainment right formulaic and people yeah. knew it it's like going to you know TGI Fridays or something you know what you're going to get every time you go there exactly and uh, you know that and, and if you did make artistic triumphs which did happen it was despite yeah all the opposing forces even the company that you work for right um, wanted to I mean the idea of 
an artist, you know, imagine, you know, if, if you think of the director as the artist, I mean, think of, you know, a patron or something coming into the uh, studio of uh, Rembrandt and saying, yeah. no, um, let me... Let me get this assistant here. Can you change the shading here? It's just, it's, it's absurd. Yeah. Um, but Wells was an artist working within a, a medium that just was, was very hostile to artists. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's very unique to our, you know, commercial, I don't want to get too into politics here, the, you know, the commercial nature of, of the arts in America. It's just, it's hostile to the artist because uh, in other countries, you know, it's actually, they actually have laws on the books that says yeah. if you're a producer or a patron, you can't interfere. Once you hire them, right, right. You, you can't interfere with the final product. That's completely laughable. Yeah. And terrifying to people who <laughs> hold the purse strings over on this side of the pond, you know. But Wells was, uh, you know, despite all this, made some great work. Thank you, sir. And, um, you know, Despite that, despite all the uh, the turmoil and the politics, we still, I think, have a have an excellent film. That and 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 having said that, we I think we do have to at least touch on the fact that you know Wells went to Brazil at a time when he probably shouldn't have. You know, I don't want to say he abandoned the film because I don't think he did, but but in a way, you know, leaving the film almost finished, but not quite finished. Yeah, it's it's you know it's heartbreaking in that sense. He really was. I, I want to shake him. What were you thinking? You know, <laughs> finish the film and then go to Brazil and, and yeah, and do it from there. But yeah, he he um, he put too much trust. From what I understand, and um, I should have, should have fact checked this. I think there was a regime change while he was away. Yeah. So, so I think. Uh, You're right. There was. I'm yes. pretty sure that's how it went down. And if anyone's out there, please feel free to write in. <coughs> um, and so he he didn't have ultimate final cut because right. of the regime change. That that clause in his contract was somehow yeah, yeah. altered or changed. And he was trusting Robert Wise, who was his assistant uh, assistant director. And and Wise did reshoot some of the sequences in the middle of the film, but. Um, you know, even Wise was being told what to do uh, yeah. at that particular point. And Definitely. No, they've, they've, you know, he had no allies in this. Even Joseph Cotton mm -hmm. wrote some letters to Wells saying, look, um, you weren't there for the preview. Right. They, they, were laughing. They, they were laughing. They didn't know what to make of this thing, you know. So he's his best friend, Joseph Cotton. Uh, maybe we'll strong call it a betrayal, but... You know, I think Cotton, you know, trying to sort of play diplomat here, yeah. tried to get Wells to work with the studio. And, you know, I, and, and Wells actually was promised to get an editing, editing um, machine yeah. by uh, Moviola. Is that, I don't know, some sort of... Yeah, you know, Moviola, yeah. I don't know if they had them back then, but the, uh, the, the, the editing desk that he was working with, uh, he was supposed to get one. You know, down, was it yeah. Brazil? Brazil. Brazil. Yeah. It was never sent. Yep. <laughs> And uh, the original, I think the original length was something like 130 minutes. Yeah, 148 minutes I have here in my oh, notes. No kids. And so they, there was, there was just so much cut. I mean, think about that for that time, too. It's a long film, yeah. so it demands a commitment at that point. So it's original, the cut that we see now is 88 minutes. So, you know, <laughs> less, just shy of what, an hour and a half. So yeah. it is just, yeah, the, the film starts off for the, for the first half of the film. It's like, it's clearly a Wells project. You know, it's, it's 
brilliant. Yeah. Every moment is is completely um, genius. And then somewhere along the way, um, it, it, it might be when um, the mother dies. It might be around where that happens, where the film starts to sort of, the pacing gets a little bit awkward. Um, when Isabel dies, right? When, yeah. when Isabel yeah. dies. And uh, suddenly, you know, some things aren't fleshed out as much. Yeah. So I, I think, and then obviously the ending is just completely out of, yeah. you know. And there are stories of Wells, uh, in fact, I think it was Peter Bogdanovich, um, and I think uh, Oya Kodar can attest to this, that sometimes this film would come on TV yeah. and Wells would be um, watching it and crying. Yeah. Uh, he wouldn't be able to watch it or he, you know, he'd excuse himself, go outside and, and cry about this. Um, it's just it's just extremely sad. And just the, the other absurd thing is that it just goes to show you how, uh, you know, how blind they were and how little foresight they had that this alternative ending doesn't exist somewhere. Yeah. It wasn't found. I mean, I've heard some very hopeful theories that it, it might be in a vault somewhere down in Brazil. Yeah. Uh, if that's ever found, I mean, I would trade that in for the other side of the wind. Yeah. <laughs> I really would. Yeah. Um, I think that, well, you know, the, the, the talk that, that something might exist came up. I, I, I don't remember the date, but when, when the film from Brazil that he was shooting at the time, It's All True, was rediscovered, uh, and and they thought maybe they found they would find some of the, the, the footage, and um, all of the reports I've read uh, were that the people at the time who were head of RKO said, "Burn it." They didn't want anything. They didn't want it. Uh, it's just unbelievable to think. But it's not just this film. But I mean, they, they burned everything right. back then. If they, they if they needed more room on the shelves, yes, they, they, they burned. Yeah, <laughs> and the, the lack of behind the scenes footage that exists. You know, I mean, they just they just didn't. They weren't thinking in terms of. Um, you know, they were thinking in terms of profit for the you know for the, the short term. Yeah, right. you're absolutely right. And it, it's what gets sacrificed is, is art. You know, the legacy of it. They weren't yeah, thinking the legacy. in terms of, of that. You know, and it's a shame. But um, if it, you know, who knows? I mean, who knows? I, I mean, I still. But you're right. It could be out I mean, somewhere, and yeah, and it may be rediscovered. The film footage of um, too much too much Johnson. Yeah. Was recently discovered. Yeah. I thought that was long, yeah. but you know, who knows? Who knows? Um, so let's talk about um, performances. I mean, I think obviously, uh, I mean, just go down the list. I think every, every performance is excellent. Um, you know, so on top of the list, Agnes Moorhead. Oh God, she's terrific, isn't yeah. she? I think just a very underrated actress, just in general. Terms of film history. Well, She's compared just, to what she did towards the end of her life, or <laughs> and Bewitched, you know, it was, um, and this this role that she plays in Amberson's, it's so much more fleshed out than what she did in, in Kane. Oh, big time. Um, you know, she's almost hysterical throughout the entire film. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, you were speaking earlier about how uh, people in the audience at the Brattle were laughing, and, and you know, it's, she's, um, she's terrific at times. Oh, she's fantastic, yeah. Yeah, she's uh, just larger than life, you know. She, you know, the, the, in Kane, she has. I think she's extremely impacting in that one, whatever, two, three minute scene. And, and Wells loved her as an actress. She oh was, yeah, she was huge in radio and in the theater. Um, I can't recall whether or not Wells used her more uh, 
on the radio or on the stage. She was a big part in the Mercury Theater in the in the in the radio productions, yeah. I believe. So yeah. okay. But you know, she was fantastic. And this is again, this is a, this is a, a day and age where naturalistic, you know, re, you know, acting was, you know, things were a little bit melodramatic yeah. still. You know, it, it took a few years for you know the realism that we really demand now to come become vogue yeah. and accepted. And and she was, I think she was very much ahead of her time. Oh, absolutely. Is is. It, it, that's that's how Wells, you know, rolled. I mean, a lot of his actors did perform in that. We, even though I said earlier that there's a heightened quality to it, um, still there's still a naturalistic, um, you know. Vibe but I to think it. I think that these are uh, these actors are, are first and foremost theater actors. Yeah. You know, they're not the movie stars. This is long before Brando and, and method acting. And, mm-hmm. So you know, acting is acting. You know, it's, it's <laughs> you go on stage and you act. That's right. You don't become the part in that in that particular sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Agnes Moorhead. But a, a testament to her brilliance, I think, is the fact that she plays a completely different role in Kane that is so subtle yes. and powerful. And then we have this role, which is completely different. She's, I mean, both both characters are tortured. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Tortured in a different way. The manifestations of that torture right. come out completely different. You're right. Exactly. You know, she's more or less a spinster in uh, The Magnificent Ambersons. Um, it, it just, it, I think it's just really brilliant how she And the, the, I, from what I understand, the original ending ends with, with you know, in that home, that, that home, um, the sort of boarding house that she's in. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, with, um, with Joseph Cotton's character. Uh, and they sort of say goodbye to each other. Yeah. And there's none of that, you know, He'll be all right, you know, yeah. that, that we get with the 88-minute cut. Wells, in response to the uh, the final edit, well, I mean, Wells was not as optimistic as we are when it comes down to, I mean, I th- again, I still think the film's a masterpiece, but Wells yeah. said uh, throughout his entire life that the film was ruined. Yeah. He says the complete effect of the film was absolutely... Uh, Destroyed yeah. by the by the optimistic ending that everything that you see in the film uh, was moving towards the scene that they eventually yeah. burned and, yeah. and, and reshot, which was you know George getting his comeuppance. Yeah, and um, so I mean, what, the the original ending does exist in, in screenplay form. Yeah, and man, uh, Wells considered. Reshoot uh, or, or actually um, shooting an epilogue. Shooting, a, yeah, an epilogue. Man, that would have been. Could you imagine with the actors at the age that they were twenty years <laughs> later? Boy, that would have been something. That would have been that would have been incredible. And I guess most of them were on board. Certainly, Joseph Cotton, from what I understand, was on board. And uh, you know, true to Wells's nature, things fell apart, or yeah. you know, the, the talk is very excited at first, and yeah. for whatever reason, it just didn't get off the ground. But that really would have been something to see. Yeah. Now this is probably this is probably total blasphemy I'm about to say, but <laughs> no longer, no longer actually after seeing uh, Rogue One, the Star Wars movie. Yeah. Do you have to be alive to be in a movie anymore? <laughs> That's right. You're absolutely correct, Peter so, Cushing. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, he was yeah. brilliant in Rogue One. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was fantastic. And that's just. I mean, that's just. I mean, eventually they're going to master that. Oh yeah, I absolutely. Mean, as brilliant yeah. as I think 
was. I mean, there has, there has been some criticism as to the CG effect of yeah. it. Yeah. I, I don't know. I thought it was... Uh, I thought it was, it was pretty, pretty well close to pretty to, close. Yeah, but eventually they're going to make it so you can't discern yeah. the difference whatsoever. What would you say if they were to reshoot? <laughs> Could you? Yeah, not that, reshoot, but shoot the, the final script. The, yeah, the actual Wells written final scene of the Magnificent Ambersons and re-edit it as it was meant to be. There is a part of me that says. You can't rewrite scripture. You yeah. can't. <laughs> but obviously you can. I right. mean, you know. And I, I think for film aficionados, and, and th- there is certainly a cult around the Magnificent Ambersons, that, yeah. you know, it, it would be interesting to see that. Um, I, I mean, I'm not above it. <laughs> maybe, as an, maybe as an appendix to the film, rather than this is, you know, an actual yeah. furthering of the film or, or, or something. Um, I would like to see it, to be honest with yeah. you. But I guess the next question will become, uh, <laughs> who has a vested interest? Who well, has a vested interest? Yeah. You know. And then you get into questions of royalties, right? Do the family or the estates get paid yeah. for that because the uh, actors are, you know. Took them 40 years to yeah, agree on uh, right, yeah. <laughs> the other I side of the So, yeah, exactly. And we don't have it yet, knock on wood. But, uh, um, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, there's, legally, I suppose, it's, uh, it's a knot. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was very interesting, too, that Wells... Um, did not, you know, he appeared, or not appeared, but he was the narrator. Yeah. But he was not in this movie. Uh, I've heard Wells say that he wanted, he always wanted to be just a director. Yeah. And uh, that was one of his goals. And, he, and, and I don't know. I mean, I think he could have, he was still young enough yeah. to play uh, George. I think he could have done that. But uh, I think this was his first attempt just to be. Just a, a director, the, the whatever the uh, the conductor, yeah, the maestro, and so. it works really well. I think that he, his voice is still there. He's you know, which is arguably the most famous part uh, mm-hmm. of, of his of his repertoire. Um, but I don't miss him in the sense that you know, with Kane, he's central. He almost overtakes the the film with sure. his with his you know his presence. Right. Um, his presence is still there. But it's it's oh, yeah. more ghost-like, it right? It is. You're right. You're right. And we're seeing what he wants us to see, at least for the first part of the film. That's right. So, yeah. in that sense, it's you know, we're seeing it through his eyes. Definitely. In terms of key scenes, uh, for me, a scene that really sticks out is the scene um, leading into Major Emerson's death. I mean, you you just didn't see anything like this back yeah. in the day. I mean, this is. You have the entire scene is just a close up of Major Amberson's face, uh, and the implication is that he's looking into a hearth or a fireplace because yeah. uh, you see the reflection. And I mean, the guy is coming face to face with his own mortality. Yeah, and you know he, he's somewhat incoherent. And I mean, the performance itself—I mean, it's unbelievable. You just didn't see such sobering, realistic. I don't even know the guy's the, the Richard name. Bennett. Richard is the, Bennett is the person who plays okay. Major Amberson. I mean, the, the, what an incredibly impacting few minutes of, of film that you, you just—I don't know. Yeah, that never comes up as a great no. scene in the film. But I, it's, for my money, it's it's one of the best. And it's a typically Wellsian scene. I, I think that you know, about old age yeah. and and how it goes back to Lear, right? The incapacities 
of old age, how we become, um, the older we get, the less relevant we become. That's right. In many ways. So, uh, Wells is, you know, despite the fact that he heavily draws from Ruth Tarkington's novel, he still wrote the screenplay, and I think it's still Shakespearean oh, in, in that sense. Yeah, yeah. But Richard Bennett is absolutely, you know, oh, he's yeah. terrific. Yeah, I mean, he, he really looks like a man. Yeah. Who knows for the very first time in his life, because we all intellectually know that we're going right. to die one day. But he's he's really yeah. coming to terms. And I think it's a great director that can get that from an actor without having the actor speak the lines. Right. right. You can just you know you give the actor direction. You, you're not saying anything, but we're gonna we're gonna do a exactly. medium shot or a you know a close up, and, and this is going to be it. Right into the camera. Yeah. And I mean, I, I can just imagine the producers watching this yeah. film. And seeing the scene, and being like, what in the world? Yeah. You, you can't shoot a movie like this. But it's just, it's just perfect. It's, it's as close to a novel as we get, right? And it's, and it's a film. Yeah. And I think the producers wanted a, they wanted a film. They yeah. didn't want a novel. That's right. And what Wells <laughs> gives them is really a, a cinematic novel. It, after they fired, uh, in essence, fired Wells from RKO, um, from what I understand. A lot of their promotional material in, in, in stationery and all that actually had written on their stationery. Um, I can only paraphrase because I, I forget the actual wording, but basically, we will give you entertainment and not artistry. Yeah, something I like remember that. that. Yes, yes, like that. right, yeah. Uh, Which is a clear dig at Wells, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, how horrible. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I had forgotten about that. Yeah. And, and from what I understand, I, I've. Um, I've not read The Magnificent Ambersons. Uh, I started reading it. Uh, I didn't stop because I was bored or anything. I just uh, uh, intend to get through it at some point. Yeah. But as I was reading it, um, I'm thinking to myself, this seems to be a little bit more upbeat um, than what Wells yeah. had going. So I think what Wells believed that you, you know, director with, with you know, a filmmaker needs to make the, the, the story his own. Yeah. So he wasn't trying to illustrate the book. He, I mean... In fact, from what I understand, uh, the novel uh, ends a little bit more upbeat than yeah. Wells. I haven't read the novel either. It's, it's funny. I own it, and it's one of those books that you own that, get you never, that I'll get to someday. And um, you know, it won the Pulitzer Prize. You know, Tarkington wins two Pulitzer Prizes. Yeah. So, but he's now all but forgotten. He was forgotten by when when Wells was making this film, really. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know. Yeah, it's bizarre. Yeah, yeah. You don't see him anthologized you don't, no, or no, he's, or, he's or on. You don't see him on college syllabi. Um, so he's he's, he's almost is. absent. But yeah. But you know, it was the same when Wells was filming him. But Wells has this really great eye for 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 works that that come from other places that he can. I mean, Lady from Shanghai, you know, that famous story is trying to get money for another picture and goes, no, I have another picture that I'll make for you, you know, and he's reading the back of a paperback or something that's like awesome. that. Yeah, that's and, great. And, you know, on the fly. <laughs> and, um, and so after this, he was essentially dropped from RKO, right? Yeah. And, um, and RKO really never recovered, I don't think, after. I, I think it no. was it was really part of the, it was... It was also the, the beginning of the end for RKO pictures yeah. as well. Wells did say that, I mean, Wells was a very superstitious man. And uh, he believed that when he was down in Brazil, that he acquired some curse. Yeah. Let's get the exact details of it. 
but um, you know he was filming voodoo ceremonies yeah. here and there. And for some reason, he he believed that he, he somehow acquired some sort of curse that followed him. For the, he, he believes that the that all his troubles, uh, his financial troubles in terms of getting yeah. projects, stems from his inability to finish um, the film down in Brazil. It's all it's yeah, all true. It's all true. And um, there's something to be said about that. I, I think that you know you have to have some place to, to to place the blame. And there has to be a reason for, for why this is happening. And Wells, like Hemingway, is his own best his own best, you know, uh, work of art yeah. in a way. You know, the stories he tells about his past and you know, some of it's true, some of it isn't, and he builds himself up in such a way. Like Hemingway, he's also his own worst enemy. Yeah. And and you know a lot of the, the issues that and problems that Wells had were you know, self induced. Yeah, he he had an absolute disdain for the concept of collaborating. Yeah, um, yeah, or compromising would be yeah. a better way of putting it. Uh, yes, you know he he had such a a unique vision, and he he, he said this in an interview. He said. It's not that I don't want to compromise. He says, I, I, I really can't. Yeah. He says, if, if, I, if I compromise with my style of filmmaking, my films don't just diminish a little bit. They just don't work. Yeah. It's kind of like, I don't know, if you take an artist in any field that's so unique, and then you, I don't know, you bring in some other collaborator to work. Yeah. It's just... They just don't work. It's right. just, it's just. When he says that, I always think of you know writers who who have, you know, who are under the gun of the heavy hand of the editors and, and, and you know Raymond Carver, for example. Um, yes, they could be better, but as well said in, in that famous speech, they wouldn't have been mine. <laughs> That's you know, right. and uh, things can be improved, but what you're getting is Wells's vision, and I. It, so for me, it's beyond integrity. Yeah. Um, there's something there's something essential there in, in his being about yeah. this is the work I, I this is the vision that I have yeah and it may be flawed but it's my vision right. he said later in life one of his um, latter day interviews I believe in 83 he actually said and I, I don't know I was a little bit discouraged by this quote he said essentially I made a mistake he said my mistake was that I fell in love with a medium that's extremely expensive. Yeah. He says I should. He, he says he spent too much time chasing money from a, a medium that um, just uh, essentially costs us too much money yeah. to uh, to be productive in. Yeah. And he said I should have I should have channeled my energy toward let's say writing. Yeah. If he was, an, I mean, if he was a novelist, and he could have done it. Yeah, yeah I think so. Uh, he, or painting, or yeah, yeah, he could have done either one of those. I mean, if you're a novel, you don't need you don't need any money for a novelist, right? I mean, uh, but as a as a as a filmmaker, he had to also be a hustler, and and sing for his supper. That's right. And and as he said in that quote that you just mentioned, yeah, he spent all most of his time, or too much of his time, hustling, hustling. Yeah, yeah, not enough time making films. You know, as, as someone who teaches, loves literature I, I always ask myself Wells the writer what would that have been like yeah. I mean I can't help but think that it would have been great I also find it very hard to believe that he never wrote a novel yeah you know, not, not one novel from, from yeah. I, I would have thought that at some point he would have written one 
Yeah. You know, the, um, the, uh, there's one novel that's attributed to him, but it wasn't. Yeah. Mr. Arcot. Mr. Arcot. But it's not, it's, it's, it's not, it's, he's always denied it, that it was his work and it isn't his work. I mean, yeah. it doesn't sound like I heard that. it's not very good. Yeah. Either, it's, right? it's, you know, it isn't. Um, yeah. I heard it was just some sort of uh, publicity. Yeah, I think so. Ploy somewhere in Europe where someone yeah. wrote it. The uh, Criterion Collection for if you buy the DVD of Mr. Arcana, it comes with with the novel. Oh no kidding! And it's interesting to to read. I've read the novel. Oh, it's really? an interesting. I mean, it's, it's just a sort of a B rate thriller. Okay. Um, and um, and it's interesting to to compare the two, but um, it's certainly not a Wells work. Wells did write a. Um, actually, was very young. He wrote a. Um, a guide to Shakespeare. Yeah, you know, um, he might have still been a student actually at uh, the Todd School. Yeah, long after that. But yeah, um, in fact, I, I've always asked myself, how can I get a copy of that? Yeah, I mean, it must exist somewhere in print. Um, but, it's in the archive somewhere. It must be. Oh no doubt, no doubt. So I think when it's all said and done, we—I mean. Uh, so many of Wells' films are, are, are labeled flawed masterpieces, but, uh, you know, I guess we can probably chalk this up as one of those flawed masterpieces, but I think I might cut it short a little bit because I still think it is an absolutely beautiful film. Even the 88-minute version is, is yeah, beautiful. Even the 88-minute version. Wells said uh, he knew when he was making this what he was getting into. And a quote here... By Wells, of course I expected there would be an uproar about a picture which, by any ordinary American standards, was much darker than anybody uh, was making pictures. There was just a built-in dread of a downbeat movie, and I knew I'd have that to face. But I thought I had a movie so good, I was absolutely certain of its value, much more than of Kane. It's a tremendous preparation uh, it's tremendous preparation for the boarding house and the terrible walk of George Minifer when he gets his comeuppance. And without that, there wasn't any plot. It's all about some rich people fighting in their house. Yeah. So. And that's the part we don't see, right? I mean, that's the ending. Yeah. That, that has been slashed. So according to Wells, the film as it stands, it's a film about some rich people fighting in their house. Hmm. Which uh, I, I can't, I can't go with him there. I think it's, no, it's, it's, he's it's much better than he's that. underplaying it for yeah. sure. And speaking of uh, his collaborators, so-called, they absolutely betrayed me and never gave me a shot at it. You know, all I could do was send wires, but I couldn't walk out on a job which had diplomatic overtones. I was representing America in Brazil, you see. I was a prisoner of a good neighbor policy. That's what made it such a nightmare. I couldn't walk out of Mr. Roosevelt's good neighbor policy with the biggest single thing they'd done on the cultural level and simply walk away. And I couldn't get my film in my hands. Wow. Yeah, well, I don't, don't know how much of a choice he had in that either because if I remember correctly, Roosevelt was at least, or someone tied to Roosevelt, was a, a shareholder in RKO Pictures. So... He was pretty much damned if he did, damned if he didn't at that point. Yeah. And I think a part of Wells, if we're being honest, really liked playing that role of, of, of working for the State Department. Oh, yeah. And, oh, and, oh, he and was... being that, that, you know, 
he saw himself as that kind of figure, as an influential figure, not only in art, but in politics and, and, and other things as well. Wells did say that he believed that politics was more important than yeah. art. Yeah, yeah. And he was very loyal to uh, Roosevelt. Of course, and actually yeah. campaigned for him later on. And wrote speeches, I believe. Absolutely. And Robert Wise, the editor, maintained that the original was not better than the edited version. <laughs> Poor Robert Wise. I don't know whether to, to be angry with him or feel sorry for him. Yeah, yeah. You know, he went on to have a, a good career in yeah, his he, own right. Yeah, he did okay. Yeah. He did okay. But uh, he had to apologize. You know, he, he had to, you know, answer, answer to that. Periodically throughout the rest yeah. of his life, you know, and uh, you know, he was always a defen- little bit defensive whenever yeah. I've seen him talk about it. But All right, so uh, I think this brings us to uh, an end of um, Classroom Critics on the Road, down the street. That's right. In Granite State Tapas. Let um, us know if you like this experimental uh, absolutely. edition. We'd, we'd love to, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we're the Classroom Critics, but we are not against um, the idea of uh, going outside the classroom. That's right. You know, change up, change the scenery. So, uh, I'd like to thank uh, you all for listening, and uh, please go onto our Facebook page and please rate us uh, on iTunes. Just uh, search Classroom Critics and let us know what you think. And uh, until next time, take care. Bye bye.